Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. And uh, last week we ended in verse 11, where the word of God said, How we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. In reference, of course, to justification by faith. In reference, of course, to receiving an imputed righteousness. But up until verse 11, we looked at verses 1, which speaks about a group of Judaizers that taught their brethren. They lectured them. And this group of Judaizers went up from Jerusalem to the church of Syria and literally gave them a lecture. You have to do this in order to be saved. You can't be saved just by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to do A, B and C in addition to believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, which of course is heresy. Anyone or anything that contaminates sola fide, meaning faith alone, needs to be rejected. Paul and Barnabas were then sent by the church in Syria. They didn't send themselves, they were sent by the church in Syria. And I said last time that you've got two churches running at the same time. One, of course, would be in Jerusalem, the mother church made up predominantly of Jews, whereas the other is in Syria, made up predominantly of Gentiles. And yet this group of Judaizers have taken it upon themselves to go down to Syria and muddy the waters, contaminate the waters. And I made the case last week from the book of Jude, how we, those of us which are born again, must contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Also the text goes on to say, there was much disputing, almost arguing. This was a real big problem for the early church. What do we do about the law? How do we handle the Gentiles? They've come in to our fold. They've got no experience about Jewry. They probably couldn't even read the Old Testament, which was penned in Hebrew and Aramaic. So what do we do about the law? This was a major problem. So you've got this battle going on between the two churches. And from verse 9, the text says, Purifying their hearts by faith. When you get born again, you receive a new heart. When you get born again, you receive a new nature. You are positionally perfect in the eyes of the one true God. But your practical standing, like Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, your practical standing, like the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, can vary. And that's why you were told to examine yourself to make sure you are in the faith. So please keep those opening points in mind as we begin today's broadcast because, like I said last week, and I'll repeat myself again, that for those of us which are born again, we must contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. We have to take a firm stand for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And that's what Paul and Barnabas were attempting to do at this conference in Jerusalem And on the one hand, it's a slight puzzle to me to try and understand the issues that were going on, meaning quite simply that the Jews that got saved, got saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet certain groups within groups took it upon themselves to teach the brethren, 15.1, that you have to do this or that to be saved. As I keep saying, that is heresy. And if you were born again, Sooner or later, you will have to take a stand against such heresy. But last week, we ended off in verse 11. I'll read it one more time for today. But we believe 
that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. There's the benchmark. That's what we stand on at this ministry. We stand on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we teach that a sinner must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, before he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, John 16, will convict him or her of their sin. You come broken to the cross. All your righteousness is as filthy rags. You're no good in your Adamic state. The word of God says, every man at his best state is altogether vanity with God. There's not a just man upon the face of the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So with those points, let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. Paul and Barnabas are giving validation. They are giving a testimony to the church in Jerusalem. And yet you would have thought they wouldn't have needed to give a defense of themselves to the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem didn't ordain Paul to be an apostle, but Jesus Christ did. Acts chapter 9. And yet Paul, as a Jew, saved of course, knows that his brethren in Jerusalem are grappling with this whole issue of law and grace. Old covenant, new covenant. That's why it says how they were declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. It must have been a great time for the early church to see their Jewish brethren going far and wide with the word of God and seeing Gentiles saved in their thousands. And I think that we are probably at the end of the church age around now. And I am hearing about many Jews coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, just last Sunday... We went to town, Patrick and I, and spoke to a Jewish man about the Messiah. And I said to him, what about Isaiah 53, the so-called forbidden chapter? Have you read it lately? And he said he hadn't. And I said to him, is that still prohibited in Jewry? Is it still prohibited in your local synagogue? And he wasn't overly sure. And I explained to him how Psalm, excuse me, how Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah, along with Psalm 22, of course. And uh, he was very gentle, open, and we had a good uh, 15, 20 minute discussion with him. But we're seeing and hearing of many Jews coming to the Messiah to be saved, and yet in the early church you've got Jews coming in their thousands and Gentiles coming in their thousands. Now it's a reverse. Gentiles aren't coming as they once did, but Jews are. And I put it down to, as I say, the belief that we hold to that we are perhaps at the end or nearing the end of the church age, which means the rapture cannot be long now. 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. James, the Lord's half-brother, Verse 13 stands up. He's the third to speak. Paul spoke briefly in verse 4. Peter spoke in verse 7. And now James is speaking in verse 13. 
And he calls Simon Peter Simeon. Did you notice that in verse 14? Simeon. I remember reading this text many years ago when I first got saved. And I thought rather foolishly and naively that perhaps this was a mistake. Simeon? You mean Simon, right? But no. I went to my Textus Receptus, my Greek New Testament, and Simeon is correct. There's two Greek words for Simon, and here James calls him Simeon. It's like a nickname. The Americans had a president back in the 60s called John F. Kennedy, but he was called Jack Kennedy by his friends and family. It's like a nickname. And here, Simon Peter, Cephas, is referred to as Simeon. Just a nickname. There's no mistake here. The King James is infallible. And the King James is the final authority. But it says, after they held their peace, that could be in reference to Paul and Barnabas from 12. And it could also be in reference to those presents at the, the uh, first church conference in Jerusalem. But it goes on to say, how God at the first did visit the Gentiles. To take out of them a people for his name. Jew and Gentile, Galatians chapter 3, are now parts of the body of Christ. And yet the Jew remains a Jew whether he's saved or not. Because that is part of his ethnicity. Whereas if you come to the Lord as a Muslim and get saved, you are no longer a Muslim. If you come to the Lord as a Catholic and get saved, you are no longer a Catholic. If you come to the Lord as a Buddhist and get saved, you are no longer a Buddhist. 15. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. 16. Is the... 19th Old Testament quotation from the book of Amos, I believe from memory, and it says, After this I will return, and will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. Tabernacle, tent, a building, if you will. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. Picture of a spiritual temple, a spiritual tabernacle, a spiritual temple, that the residue... Of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. We are now part of a spiritual temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The word of God says, if you defile your temple, or if somebody defiles your temple, God will destroy that person. Why? Because the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost lives within you. You are a holy vessel. You are a peculiar people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a son of the Most High. So the analogy here is quite simply that the temple, tabernacle, tent of David was destroyed. I would say probably permanently back in the book of Jeremiah. Temple gets destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And the Jews go into captivity for 70 years. And then they come out of captivity, Nehemiah, Ezra. And they start to rebuild But that takes many years to rebuild. In fact, when the Lord arrived, he was born 4 BC and he died 30 AD. They were still building Herod's temple. They were still expanding Herod's temple. And he told the Jews that if you destroy this temple, John chapter 2, I 
will raise it up again in three days. In reference to his body, of course, not his literal temple, the Jewish temple. And that temple went down in 70 AD, thanks to a rather zealous Roman soldier. Titus told the Romans, don't destroy the temple. It's one of the great wonders of the world, one of the seven wonders of the world. And yet this zealous Roman soldier torched the temple, destroyed the temple. Of course, we know that was the Lord's providence. That was the Lord's will. That temple pointed to his glory. And the Jews came, crucified his son. They chose Barabbas instead of his son. And the Lord said, that's okay. You've now got 40 years to get your house in order. But it goes back to 1 Samuel 8, when the Jews rejected God the Father. And then Acts 7, the Jews rejected Stephen. And he was speaking for the Holy Spirit. He sees Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. And they reject Stephen's testimony. And therefore they have now rejected God the Holy Spirit. So 1 Samuel 8, they reject God the Father. Matthew 27, let his blood be on us and on our children. They have rejected God the Son. And Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching to them by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and they have now rejected God, the Holy Spirit. They are under judgment. And that temple goes down in 70 AD, and the Jews are scattered. But no real time to discuss that this morning. Here the switch is from a physical tabernacle, a physical tent, a physical temple, 16 David, to a spiritual temple, to a spiritual tabernacle, to a spiritual tent. Verse 17, 18. Known unto God of all his works from the beginning of the world. He is totally sovereign. If you are born again, if you are in any kind of trouble, just go to Romans eight twenty-eight, And that tells you how all things, without exception, work together for good to those who are the called according to his purpose. God is sovereign. He doesn't need us to do anything for him. And if you are saved, if you are doing something for him, that's a great blessing on you but he doesn't need you to do anything for him he wants you to serve him he wants you to read his word he wants you to witness about his beloved son but he doesn't need you to do such in fact if you don't do certain things for him he'll find someone who can but ultimately he is sovereign and yet at the same time i will just add this as a quick footnote man through the grace of god has free will And the two run side by side. You can't necessarily understand that. But I believe you are expected to believe that. Much like the trinity of God. Verse 19 please. Wherefore my sentence is. That we trouble not them. Which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. But that we write unto them. That they abstain from pollutions of idols. And from fornication. And from things strangled. And from blood. My sentence is this, my feeling is this, that we, the church of Jerusalem, trouble not them, that we, the church of Jerusalem, don't put a yoke around their necks, verse 10, that we, the saved Jews from Jerusalem, don't bog them down, that we, the mother church, don't teach lordship salvation. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. There's a clear picture of repentance. You turn to God. You come as you are. You receive him 
You turn to him, you believe on him. There's no works involved. I think one of the clearest pictures of this will be the thief on the cross. A very wicked man. And you can be sure that he wasn't just a thief. Quite possibly he may have been a murderer like Barabbas. And he turns to the Lord on the cross. And he says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Lord says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. There's no works involved. And the same be true from Acts 16. We'll get there in a couple of weeks time when the Philippian jailer is moments from suicide. And he says to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? In fact, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. The latter, of course, would need to believe as well. But there's no works involved. You turn to God in faith. You go from unbelief to belief. 20, but that we write unto them that they, believing Gentiles, abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Four prohibitions, four points that the Gentiles are expected to follow. And may I say this, that this wasn't four suggestions. These are actually decrees from 16.4, which were ordained 16.4 by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. And it is somewhat troubling, if I can use that term, or it is somewhat difficult to try and harmonize this piece of scripture with the Pauline epistles. And it came to me last week that the best way to understand what is being written here, the best way to grasp what is being referred to here, is to read Romans chapter 14. Because you were told that if you caused your brother or sister to stumble due to your liberty in the Lord, they would perish meaning their conscience would be defiled. They would stumble. They may even fall in a sense of their practical standing. This is the truth of the matter, that we have to be so careful that we never cause our brothers or sisters to stumble. And here, James knows that the Jews are very sensitive to idols, fornication, which could be either spiritual or physical, and I believe this to be physical fornication, from things strangled and from blood. What this is ultimately speaking about is you can't offer meat to idols. Food per se, we know is okay from Romans 14. That's not the issue. In fact, we were told from 1 Corinthians 8 that meat or food doesn't commend us to the Lord or not. He doesn't care if you are a meat eater or not. That's not going to save you or damn you. That's not the issue. There may be arguments to be a vegetarian from a health perspective, but a spiritual perspective, it makes no difference whatsoever. And here you've got this great intake from the Gentile world into the body of Christ. And it was causing problems, as I say, amongst the Jewish believers. And therefore to stop anybody stumbling, to stop anybody from being offended, these four commandments have gone up. They've been issued. They've been affirmed. 21. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Had you wanted to be saved back in the days of the uh, Old Covenant, pre the Lord's arrival, had you wanted to be saved? It says here that Moses hath 
in every city, them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. You could have found a local synagogue had you wanted to, and you could have joined it or gone along to hear the word of God read. And that goes back to Romans chapter 1, how mankind has light. Mankind has revelation. In my country, there are churches pretty much in every town and city. And those churches point up, not down. Now, I know those churches are apostate. I know that if there was ever any truth in such churches, it's now long gone. But, listen to me, those churches still point up. And those churches are an indirect testimony to the one true God. And I believe that the great white throne judgment, when Jesus Christ judges the unsaved, he will say to those, especially those that live in the West, what about these churches in your towns and cities and villages? They all pointed up. They didn't point down. And he will use such landmarks as a testimony against them. Well, the same is true, 21, in reference to synagogues, pretty much all over the Roman Empire. Of course, back in Moses' day, there was no Roman Empire. But you get my gist. There were places of worship which met to read the word of God. And that, I believe, will be held up from those back in the Old Testament era in connection with judgment, responsibility, so on and so forth. And churches, post-Moses, churches in my country, and maybe in the West, will be also cited as a picture of Christianity. 22. Then it pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us, have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are they going to do? They're going to issue an epistle. They're going to issue a letter. They're going to issue a note. And this note will be signed by the apostles, 23, and elders, and brethren. And he goes on to say in 24, you must be circumcised and keep the law, which was what initially caused this problem, to whom we gave no such commandments. What are they saying? They're saying that this group from 15.1 and this group from 15.5, this group of believing Pharisees, saved Jews, took it upon themselves to go up to the church in Syria and lecture them about the Mosaic law. And James, taking the lead here from verse 13, makes it very clear that we, the Jewish leaders, gave no such commandment. And this is why it's imperative to be a Bible-believing Christian. Because if you don't believe the Bible, how in the world will you know the difference between right and wrong? If you are part of a church system and you are being taught to do A, B, and C, how do you know if that church is telling the truth? How do you know if they are speaking the truth? Well, of course, you don't without the word of God. And for centuries, the Catholic Church performed their services in Latin. The priests spoke in Latin, but the laity did not. The priests could read and write, although not all of them could, 
but most could, whereas a laity could not. And you've got a two-tier system there, you've got the priests and the laity, and the priests, for the most part, were educated. And therefore you've got a great pooling of ignorance. And I put it to you this morning that the same is very much true today. It could be the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists. And for the most part, they are following blindly their leaders. But, uh, as I say, the early Catholic Church, the Church of Constantine, or thereabouts, going into probably the 11th, 12th century, in fact, going right up probably to the Reformation, was predominantly learned in the language of Latin. Not Greek, not Hebrew, and not Aramaic. And that was problematic because the laity had no idea whether they were being told the truth or not. And that's why it's imperative, if you are a saved man or woman, listening to me this morning, to have your Bible open and read it along with me. So this letter has gone out, and it makes it very clear how they gave no such commandment, but it goes on to say, it seemed good to us, or it seemed good unto us, verse 25, being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. There are people who to this day criticize Paul, and there are people to this day who call Paul an antichrist. But ask yourself this, could it be possible that Paul could have completely bewitched the early church? Could it be possible that Paul could have contaminated the early church. You see, you'll read next time in verse 28 how the Holy Ghost is going to affirm the conclusion of this church conference. I don't think it's possible that the early church could have been deceived with the Holy Spirit very much a part of their meeting and their life, so on and so forth. But this group here are referring to Barnabas and Paul as beloved. Men, 26, that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the early church, the Jerusalem church, are affirming their credentials. They are blessing Paul and Barnabas, who have risked their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll close it there in verse 26. I'm out of time for today, and we'll pick it up next week in verse 27. But just one very brief wrap-up from verses 11 to 26. And I'll say this very quickly, that... The early church were able to thrash out this whole issue of law and grace. And along the way, they're able to put the works righteous brigade to shame. They were able to silence heretics and heresies which sought to undermine the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, it's not as simple as that. Because in Acts 16, Paul will take Timothy and circumcise him. And I will speak about that later on. And much later in the book of Acts, James will say to Paul, this group of Jewish men are very zealous of the law and they think you are trying to overthrow the law. And Paul shaves his head. Paul takes a sacrifice and goes into the temple to try and appease this Jewish movement. So you see, even the best would stumble. Even the best would try and go back to the law and in some ways try and resurrect the old man. Romans 6, if it meant getting people saved. But I'm out of time for today, and I'll pick up that theme, that very concerning truth of Scripture, over the next few weeks.